All right, let's talk a little bit about John Donne's religious poetry. And we'll start with the Holy Sonnets. Let's look at Holy Sonnet 1. Thou hast made me, and shall thy work decay? Repair me now, for now mine end doth haste. I run to death, and death meets me as fast, and all my pleasures are like yesterday. I dare not move my dim eyes any way. Despair behind and death before doth cast such terror, and my feeble flesh doth waste by sin in it, which it towards hell doth weigh. Only thou art above, and when towards thee by thy leave I can look, I rise again. But our old subtle foe so tempteth me that not one hour myself I can sustain. Thy grace may wing me to prevent his art, and thou like adamant, draw mine iron heart. All right, so we have a you know a sonnet here, and we can see that it's a Petrarchan sonnet. It's got an octave, two rhyme sounds in the first eight lines, and then three new rhyme sounds in the sestet, the last six lines. Uh, but as you see, Dunn is not using this for a romantic poem, but for a spiritual poem. He's talking not about his relationship with a mistress, but about his relationship with God. Uh, so he begins, he's worried about uh, he's worried about death and damnation, uh, very weighty theological topics. He wants, and he wants, he's calling, this is a kind of a prayer, he's calling on God to help him repair me now. Uh, it says, you, you made me, and yet I'm decaying, I'm mortal, I'm going to die. Uh, my end doth haste. I run to death, and death meets me as fast. It's like he's on a collision course. He's heading towards death, death is heading towards him. Uh, and all my pleasures are like yesterday. It's like even the pleasures I have, I, I can't enjoy them. They're already gone. They're, they're yesterday by the time I have them. Uh, that time is moving by so fast. I dare not move my dim eyes anyway. So I, he says, I don't know where to look. Despair behind and death before. So here he is, he's stuck. He's got despair behind him and death ahead of him. And now remember, despair is not just depression. It's a theological concept. It's the idea that I'm unforgivable. So despair is chasing him, death is running towards him, uh, and they cast such terror, and my feeble flesh doth waste by sin in it. So he's got despair behind him, death in front of him, and within him he has sin that is wasting him away, uh, which, and it's a sin which it toward hell doth weigh. So the sin is dragging him down. He can't go forward. He can't go back. He can't go down. That's weighing him down to hell. Um, it says, only thou art above. So above all the all this fray is God. And he can notice he can only look uh, above by God's leave, by thy leave. If you give me permission, I can look above. Otherwise, I'm trapped down here with despair and death and sin. Uh, he says, by thy leave I can look, and when I do that, I rise again. That's a, a kind of resurrection image. He says, but our old subtle foe, uh, the, the devil, temptation, tempt, tempts him, 
that I uh, that not one hour myself I can sustain. So I, I by myself I, I can't even keep focused on God for a single hour. Temptation comes in and I'm back in this despair and death and sin. It says thy grace may wing me to prevent his heart. So you could give me wings and let me fly all above this. Your grace, your forgiveness. And thou, like adamant, draw mine iron heart. So think about why is his heart like iron? It's, it's hardened. His heart, his heart is hardened against God. That's a, a, an image that's used throughout the Bible. In the Exodus, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, and here he's got an iron heart. Also, it's heavy. It's like that sin weighing him down. But God can draw that heart to him like adamant. Now, adamant, as your footnote will tell you, was a lodestone, a magnet. But adamant is also the the mythologically the hardest substance there is, a kind of an impossibly hard substance. And so, in a way, he's picturing if God is adamant and I'm iron, iron is hard, but adamant is even harder. So it's like he, God has the trump card. He's, he's even more firm than I am. Uh, and the thing about this is the, the spiritual struggle it's talking about. He knows that he's in trouble. He's trying to do the right thing. He's beset by all of these things, and he needs the grace of God to rise above them. Now, in a very interesting way, that's very parallel to the Petrarchan sonnets that we saw, where the the lover was in despair and called on his mistress to save him. But there it was a romantic context, and here it's a spiritual or religious one. And, you know, Dunn's well aware of the history of the sonnet and knows, in a way, it's kind of shocking to have these uh, religious poems written in a poetic form that was associated with romance and love. Uh, And also, remember that the Petrarchan sonnets that we've seen are all about frustrated, unattainable love. And that gives another edge to these poems, Uh, There's not a resolution here. Thy grace may wing me. It's not, oh, everything is settled, I'm saved now. He is hoping that he will be saved in the same way that the Petrarchan lover is hoping that the lady will return his, his favors and attentions. All right, let's look at Sonnet 7. At the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. All whom the flood did and fire shall o'erthrow, all whom war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance hath slain, and you whose eyes shall behold God and never taste death's woe. But let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space, for if above all these my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. Here, on this lowly ground, teach me how to repent, for that's as good as if thou hadst sealed my pardon with thy blood. Now here again we see the 
Petrarchan sonnet. It's even got the turn on line nine. But so the first the, the first eight lines, the octave, are about the day of judgment, uh, and that beautiful image the, the the corners of the four the four corners of the round earth is almost kind of squaring the circle here. So the the angels blow their trumpets, the all of the the dead will arise, and to your scattered bodies go. Uh, remember that image in the in the relic where he had a, a bracelet of his mistress's hair, uh, because he knew that would mean she would have to come and reclaim that uh, a scattered body, and so all of the dead bodies will be doing that kind of reassembling. All whom the flood did and fire shall o'erthrow, from everyone who was killed in Noah's flood to all those who are killed in the fire that destroys the world the second time, all of them come back. And then this long list of all the things that have killed man, war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, all of this. And even those whose eyes shall behold God and never taste death's woe, so the, the people who uh, are, are, didn't die before the second coming. So he's calling on this kind of apocalyptic moment, the day of judgment. Everybody rise and will be, be judged by God. But then he takes it all back. Uh, but let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space. So wait, wait let's not have that final judgment just yet. Uh, let, let me, let me, I'm in mourning for a while. Uh, and why? Look at what he's worried about. For if above all these my sins abound, is late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. He said, look, I can't be asking for forgiveness on the day of judgment. I need to have things squared away before that. Uh, if, and again, if above all these my sins abound, there's a hint of despair in that, that my sin would might be worse than all of these other sins. So here, on this lowly ground, not this lofty round earth's round imagined corners, uh, this apocalyptic moment, but here in the everyday world, teach me how to repent. As if for that's as good as if thou had sealed my pardon with thy blood. Which, of course, in Christian theology, God has. The Christ's blood has redeemed him, has sealed his pardon. Um, so he goes from this the, the octave, looking at this kind of apocalyptic moment, to this very intimate, personal moment. Where I, need, I need to get right before that happens. And again, this is not a, a poem where he's saying, I have achieved salvation. Uh, I think a lot of, uh, of contemporary religious discourse is very declarative. Uh, you know, this is, this is the truth. And Dunn's religious poetry, and I think much of the religious poetry of the 17th century, is very interrogative. It's questioning. It's it's not certain. It's trying to find a certainty. Uh, and we see him here struggling with his faith, in, again, in beautifully in the same kind of way that a Petrarchan lover was struggling to find the, the grace from his mistress. Let's look at Sonnet 14. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you, as yet, but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, 
but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. All right, let's look at the imagery here that he's starting out. The, it starts off with the imagery of a military siege, a battering ram, batter my heart. So the image is that the speaker's heart is a defended castle, and God is the invader trying to batter it, the walls down, the three-person God, the Trinity. And he says, you know, so far you've been, he says, knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. And he says, you need to do more than that. In line four, he says, instead of knock at the door, you need to break it down. Instead of breathing, you need to blow. Instead of shining, you need to burn. Instead of just seeking to mend me, you need to make me new. So he, he wants God to get more proactive here. He wants him to you know, in, increase the, uh, the attack on his sinful soul. And look at the, the paradox in, in line three, that I may rise and stand or throw me. So I can never be upright unless you overthrow me. Uh, which again, doesn't make any logical sense. Um, and then he goes on and he expands this uh, metaphor of warfare. I, like an usurped town, so he's a town who has been usurped, who's been conquered, to another do, labor to admit you. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the bad guys have taken over the town, and I would like to let you in the town instead of you having to batter down the gate, but oh, to no end. I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. Reason, your viceroy in me, so reason is the viceroy, literally uh, uh, vice king, uh, he's supposed to be in charge, he's supposed to be defending me, but he's been taken captive. Reason is taken captive and is weak and untrue, and so I can't, I can't reason my way to finding salvation. Reason isn't strong enough to do that. Um, it says, yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain. I, said, I, I, I love you, but I'm, I'm here in enemy territory. I'm betrothed unto your enemy. So I'm married to your enemy, to Satan, to sin. Divorce me. That's an odd thing to ask God to do, right? God, you, you you call on God in a marriage ceremony. You don't usually call on you don't. Ha, we don't have a, a, a religious ceremony for divorce, right? Where let God break this marriage asunder. Uh, so God doesn't usually preside over divorces, but that's what He's asking: divorce me from your enemy that I'm married to. Uh, it says untie or break that knot, the marital knot. Again, uh, again, notice the escalation from untie to break, like at the beginning of the poem. He, he wants more God to be more active in this. He says, take me to you, imprison me. Again, it escalates, not just take me, but throw me in prison, 
says, For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. Now, enthrall literally means to enslave. So unless you enslave me, I'll never be free. Another kind of John Donne paradox there. Uh, God has to en- has to enslave me for me to have my freedom. Nor ever chaste, uh, be, I'll never be a virgin, except you ravish me. Ravish means rape. So you have to rape me for me to be a virgin. Uh, again, a paradox. And again, Think about what he's asking God to do. Divorce, enslave, rape. These are not the things that we think of God doing to his his people. Um, In a way, what Dunn is asking here is, well, think about why can't God just make him be good? Well, because then he's not good. He's just a puppet. Uh, if it's not of his free will, now God can help him. He can do those things that he says in the second line, you know, knock and the door shall open. He can breathe his spirit into him. He can shine the light of heaven on him. He can seek to mend him. Um, but he can't enslave him because then it, it's not a victory. So this this poem, and the very shocking and very sexual imagery in it, um, is again the the psychological situation that Dunn finds himself in, that his salvation, he knows what needs to be done. He doesn't feel like he's strong enough to do it. You've seen that in all of these poems. And he needs God's help. Uh, and here he's asking for help that he knows really that God can't give him. Uh, it's the same kind of impossible, unattainable situation that the Petrarchan lover is in uh, in regard to his mistress. What the Petrarchan lover is seeking is his mistress's favor or love. What Dunn is seeking is salvation, and it seems just as unattainable as the Petrarchan mistress in these poems. Now, let's look at uh, Sonnet 19. Oh, to vex me, contraries, meet in one, inconstantly, inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit, that when I would not, I change in vows and in devotion, as humorous is my contrition, as my profane love, and is soon forgot, as rithlingly distempered, cold and hot, as praying is mute, as infinite as none, I durst not view heaven yesterday, and today, in prayers and flattering speeches, I court God. Tomorrow I quake with true fear of his rod. So my devout fit comes and goes away, like a fantastic ague, save that here, those are my best days, when I shake with fear. So this gets at that kind of paradoxical psychology that we see in, in these holy sonnets, to to vex me, contraries meet in one. So again, it's paradoxical, these contradictory things all meeting in one. Inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit. So the only thing that I am constant in, my habit, is being inconstant. It says that when I would not, I change in vows and in devotion. So when I don't want to, I suddenly find myself breaking my vows and stopping my devotion to God. And he says his his contrition, his asking for forgiveness, is as humorous 
as my profane love. So humorous doesn't mean funny. Remember, humorous refers to the the four humors, the uh, different fluids in the body that control your health and your psychology. And if you were humorous, it meant that your that your humors are unbalanced, that they're not uh, uh, coherent. And he says, I'm as humorous in my contrition, my asking for forgiveness, as my profane love. So like those Petrarchan lovers, right? I'm just as as flighty as they are, and as soon forgot. Uh, the same way, you know, he, he, to fall deeply in love with somebody, and you know, the next, you know, next year you can't even remember them. So he he's saying, I, I'm treating my this serious spiritual thing like an unserious romantic relationship. This is riddlingly distempered. Now, distempered is another uh, image from the four humors. His his temper is out of whack. He's he's again he's crazy here. Uh, cold and hot, praying as praying as mute as infinite as none. Here are these contraries meeting together. Cold and hot. And now that sounds just like a Petrarchan cliche, right? Those Petrarchan conceits. But then we get praying as mute. So, I, I, you know, one minute I'm praying, the next minute I'm mute, uh, as infinite as none. He says, yesterday, I don't want to even think about heaven, and today, in prayers and flattering speech, I court God. Notice the verb, court. He's putting it in those romantic terms. Uh, tomorrow, I quake with true fear. Um, so, you know, yesterday... He didn't wasn't interested in heaven. Today, he's trying to court God. Tomorrow, he's terrified that he's going to be punished for his sinfulness. Uh, so the devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague. An ague was a fever. So this is is, is like you know when you're feverous, and this again is the idea of sickness, distemper, humorous. Uh, there, there's something wrong with him that's not uh, needs to be healed. Um, it says save that. Here, those are my best days when I shake with fear. And again, another uh, paradox. The best days are when I'm shaking in fear. Again, a fear of his quake with true fear of his rod. Because that's when he's closest to forgiveness, when he, he genuinely realizes the consequences. But he can't sustain that. He, he, he is, again, he's humorous, he's distempered, he's in a, a, a fantastic ague. Um, and I, again, that kind of sums up the, the kind of very paradoxical psychology of these holy sonnets, uh, that he, he knows what the right thing to do is, but he finds that he's unable to do it. Uh, there's a, a Bible verse that I think is very crucial for understanding Dunn's Holy Science. It's Romans 7.19. Uh, it says that for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. So that's almost exactly what Dunn has been saying. The things that are good that I want to do, I don't do them. And the evil things which I don't want to do, I wind up doing those. So that's the that's the sinful condition that he needs help with, and, and as I said before, these poems are not 
declarative. They're not kind of saying, well, here's the way to salvation, and you just do this, and you'll be good. Uh, it's saying, here is the the terrible fallen situation we're in. Uh, we, we know what we need to do, and we, we're not sure we need God's grace to attain it. Uh, so the they take some of that psychology from the Petrarchan sonnets, but put it in a very different register by putting it in a spiritual context. Uh, and even the fact that they're, you know, they're doing that is kind of paradoxical. That use of a, a Petrarchan format for such a, a, a different thematic uh, in, in the poems. Uh, and, you know, any and all of Dunn's holy sonnets are worth looking at. But I'd like to go on now and look at uh, a longer poem, Good Friday, 1613, Riding Westward. And this one tells us quite plainly when it was written, right? Uh, it was on Good Friday on, in 1613. Um, Good Friday, of course, is the day that Christ died on the cross. So with that in mind, let's kind of go through this poem and see what's on Dunn's mind here. Let man's soul be a sphere, and then in this, the intelligence that moves devotion is. And as the other spheres, by being grown subject to foreign motions, lose their own, and being by others hurried every day, scarce in a year their natural forms obey, pleasure or business, so our souls admit for their first mover, and are whirled by it. Okay, this is a very complicated image. He's setting it, okay, imagine man's soul is a sphere, uh, and the intelligence that moves it is devotion. So sphere, he's, the spheres he's talking about here are the, the heavenly spheres, the spheres that the planets rotate on. And each of those spheres had an intelligence, kind of an angelic spirit that moved it. Uh, remember, this was before Newton had invented gravity. Um, so devotion is the force that moves man's soul, devotion to God. Um, but it's not that simple, as, as, as we've seen in the Holy Sonnets. Th these other spheres, by being grown subject to foreign motions, lose their own. So the idea is that the... Uh, the, the, they knew that the planets didn't follow these perfectly spherical orbits. They were elliptical, and they moved back and forth, and they didn't, you know, they didn't uh, obey a perfect uh, form. Uh, and so that happens to us. We're we're thrown off course. Uh, you know, pleasure or business uh, moves us away from devotion. Uh, and our souls admit for their first mover. You know, the first mover is God, the, the prime mover, the one who started everything. And But we supersede that. These earthly things move us, and we are whirled, whirled around, spun around, uh, not the kind of stately motion of the spheres, but just whirled around. It says, Hence is it that I am carried towards the west this day when my soul's form bends toward the east. So remember the title. He, it's on Good Friday. He's riding westward. Well, his soul's form, what he wants to do, what, what his devotion would take him, would be toward the east. 
Why? Well, because that's where Jerusalem is. That's where Christ was crucified. So while he's moving westward, he should be, he's thinking about the Far East. Uh, there, in the east, in Jerusalem, the sun, by rising, set. And by that setting, endless day beget. Again, a lot of paradoxical imagery here. He's talking about the sun, S-U-N, but also S-O-N, the Son of God, by rising, by being elevated on the cross, setting, dying. And by that setting, by that death, an endless day beget. So the death of Christ was not a, an endless night, it was an endless day. It, was a, it brought light into the world. But that Christ on this cross did rise and fall, sin had eternally benighted all. So if, it, if it, this hadn't happened, this rise and fall, another paradox, that sin would have, we would have been in night eternally, not the endless day that Christ has begotten. Yet, dare I almost be glad I do not see that spectacle of too much weight for me. He says, I, yeah, in a way, I'm really glad I, I didn't see that. That would be, it would be, that's literally, it's too heavy for me. I couldn't bear it. Who sees God's face, that is self-life, must die. Well, that, that's a, a, an idea that's very powerful, both in the Bible and in all kinds of religions, that if you look at the face of God, it will kill you. A mortal will, will die if they see God's face. Uh, and he's God who is self-life. That is, is life itself. God is the source of all life. Uh, and if I saw that, I would die. Now, that's particularly paradoxical and ironic because what he would, as he says, uh, what a death were it then to see God die. I wouldn't just be looking at God's face. I would be looking at God's death. God dies on the cross. Uh, well, that would be that would be even worse. Um, and he talks about the effects of that, of the, the, the death on the cross. It made his own lieutenant, nature, shrink. It made his footstool crack and the sun wink. So he's talking about in the in the Gospels, it talks about when the at the moment when Christ dies, there's an earthquake, uh, the, the, the sun is blotted out. Uh, wink here doesn't mean kind of a, a just, you know, kind of a, a sly blinking of one eye. It means to close the eyes. So the sun itself darkens, closes its eyes, looks away. So even the sun can't watch this. You know, could I behold those hands which span the poles and tune all spheres at once, pierced with these holes? So this image, you know, God, he has the whole world in his hands, and his hands span the poles of the globe. Uh, and you think about in a globe, you actually have that. It is actually literally a pole that uh, it, through the middle of the earth, um, and tune all spheres at once. Here we get back to that idea of the heavenly spheres uh, pierced with these holes. So his hands that span the the poles that have the the two poles in his hands now have the the nails of the cross that are pierced through there. Um, you know, could I behold? that endless height 
which is zenith to us and to our antipodes, humbled below us. Now this is just kind of almost gives you vertigo. So the endless height is the God, is infinitely above us. He's the highest being there is, which is zenith. The, the zenith is the highest point um, to us and our antipodes, and to our antipodes. The antipodes is directly opposite us on the earth. You know, the idea that if you, you know, dig a hole straight through, you'll dig all the way to China. Well, that was the idea of the antipodes. Well, God is zenith to us, but he's also the zenith to the people on the other side of the globe. He's above everything, even those that are the farthest beneath us. And yet he see that, that endless height humbled below us, so God, who is the this is the mystery of the incarnation, God, who is the uh, maker of the universe, becomes a humble human being who actually dies for us. Or that blood, which is the seed of all our souls, if not of His, make dirt of dust. Or that flesh, which was worn by God for His apparel, ragged and torn. Again, all of these paradoxes, the, the blood, which is the seat of our souls, so that God gave, is, the, is the giver of all life, uh, made dirt of dust, uh, kind of the image of ashes to ashes, dust to dust, uh, again, humbled below us. And the flesh, which was worn by God for his apparel, so God wore a human form, like we would wear clothes, ragged and torn, but now that physical body he's put on has been tortured and is being killed. Uh, if on these things I durst not look, durst I upon his miserable mother cast mine eye, who was God's partner here, and furnished thus half of that sacrifice which ransomed us? So now he's picturing Mary, uh, Christ's mother, who's there at the crucifixion, says, I, I can't, well, I, I certainly couldn't look at Christ. Could I, could I even, but could I even look at Mary? She was God's partner. She, she gave half that sacrifice. Of course, Jesus is the son of Mary and God. She is one of his parents. And he goes on, Though these things as I ride be from mine eye, they are present yet unto my memory. So remember, he's riding westward, so his eye is not seeing them. It's not even looking in the right direction to see them, but he can remember them. Uh, and this is uh, one of the beliefs they had in, in the Renaissance was that the memory was stored in the back of the brain, in the, so it would be in the back of the head. So they literally, his eyes are facing westward, and the part of his brain that has memory is facing east toward the, the crucifixion. For that looks towards them. His memory looks towards them. And thou looks towards me. So he's, his memory is looking back at the east, and God is looking towards him. O Savior, as thou hangst upon the tree, uh, the, the tree, the cross, is, I turn my back to thee, but to receive corrections till thy mercies bid thee leave. 
So here he's saying, look, I, I, I'm turning my back on you. He's talking about how could I look at this? I'm turning away. I'm go heading westward when I should be going eastward. But now he, he flips that idea. I'm turning my back on thee to receive corrections. So the way you would, you turn, he turns your back to be, to be whipped, to be punished, till thy mercies bid thee leave, until I get your mercy. Oh, think me worth thine anger. Punish me. Burn off my rusts and my deformity. Restore thine image so much by thy grace that thou mayest know me, and I'll turn my face. So here again, this kind of paradoxical, it's, it's kind of like batter my heart, three-person God. He, he, I, I want to be worth your anger, worth your, your punishment, to, to burn off my rusts and my deformity. And why? Because that will restore your image. We're, I'm made in the image of God. I want to be restored to that image by thy grace, that thou mayest know me, and I'll turn my face. Uh, think about the implications of that. I'll turn my face. I'll turn back towards the east. It also fits in the idea of turn the other cheek. I'll, I'll have learned the, the, the lessons of God. Um, it's a... This is, you know, even for Dunn, this is a remarkably dense poem. Um, and again, as we saw with his uh, love poems, it's both very intellectual and very emotional. Uh, you can see that, I mean, I always get the impression when I'm reading John Dunn that he's just so bloody smart. I mean, you get the sense of this incredible mind at work. Uh, but also, you get these deeply felt passions and here are the kind of paradoxes that we see in the holy sonnets of of turning away from God as a way of turning towards him. And think about that, that paradox. The, the, the idea of circularity and spheres comes into this from the very beginning. He's heading westward. Well, what happens if you go all the way westward? The earth is a circle. You come back to the east. Um, and then I'll turn my face. Um, and that, of course, fits in with the whole paradox of the death and resurrection. It was by falling to the lowest depth that Christ was able to rise and save mankind. Uh, so those, all those kinds of paradoxes wrapped up in this, in this poem. All right, let's look at A Hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run, and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. So he's talking, this is a, a, an asking for forgiveness. You know, will you forgive this? And the first kind of sin he talks about, the sin, it's my sin, though it were done before. That's original sin. You know, that, that sin was committed before I was even here, and yet it's still something I need forgiveness from. Uh, will you forgive the sin through which I run and uh, do run still, though still I do deplore? Again, like that Bible verse, he knows that he deplores these sins, but he's still running through them and doing them. He says, when thou hast done, thou hast not done. For I have more. Now, that's obviously uh, 
that, that this refrain in the poem is, is a pun on the author's name, right? When is when you have finished, you have not finished, and when you have John Donne, you have not John Donne. So you've forgiven him, you have his soul. Oh no, wait, there's more. I've got more. Second stanza. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? So now they're getting even more serious. These are the sins that I inspired other people to be sinful. So it's not just my own sins, but I was the cause of sin in other people. Uh, I opened the door to sin for them. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? So, yes, I was very good. I gave up the sin for a year or two, but then for 20 years I just indulged in it all the way. All right? Can you forgive that? And again, when thou hast done... Thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. So let's think about this last sin, this sin of fear. And think about what is it he's afraid of and why would fear be a sin? Well, he's afraid when I've spun my last thread. Uh, that's a, a, a image from classical mythology, right? The, the fates that spin out the thread of your life. When he spun out the last thread and when he dies, I shall perish on the shore. So he will be dead if on the shore, on the shore of the, the ocean, he won't go farther. He'll just be dead here. There's no shores for him to go to. Um, again, this may be kind of like in the classical image of the river Styx. He's just kind of on the, this bank and can't get any passage over to the other side. Um, and it may even be an idea that there is no afterlife. When you're dead here, you're just dead. All this being forgiven for sin doesn't matter because there's nothing that happens after life. That's the, that's my real fear, that there's no there's no forgiveness of sin in the afterlife because there's no afterlife. When it when it's done here, it's done. And so he says, "Swear by thyself that at my death, thy sun shall shine as he shines now." and heretofore. So what the reassurance he wants is that the sun, uh, the Christ, will, will shine on him as he shines now and as he did in the past. So that you, you will be there in the future, in my future after death, the same way you, have been, you are now and the same way you used to be. Um, and notice that the only reassurance he can get is swear by thyself. God has to swear by himself. What else is there to, for him to swear by? Uh, and having done that, thou hast done. I fear no more. Uh, so when that last fear is resolved, uh, and this is this is not quite like despair. Despair is believing your sins are unforgivable. This sin of fear seems to be the idea that the forgiveness of sins is pointless because there's no afterward. 
he, you just perish on the shore. But if you sh- swear that no, there is, it does go on, that you, the sun shines, and that gives the idea of, you know, every day, the sun comes up every day. There may be a darkness, but it shines out again, uh, that you will always be there to shine forth again. When I, when I know that, having done that, thou hast done, uh, but again, it's a kind of a paradoxical thing. Swear by thyself? Well, if he already believed in God, he wouldn't need God to swear by himself. Um, so the, you know, another Bible verse that always comes into my mind when I'm thinking about John Donne is, work out thy own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's very much what Donne is doing here. He's, he, this is not a poem of religious certainty. He wasn't a, po- a poet of certainty. He's a, a, a poet of, of uncertainty, of, of needing reassurance, of grappling with these very difficult theological issues and trying to find the answers. Um, it's a you know, very powerful, uh, the religious verse of the 17th century, not just John Donne, but uh, George Herbert, and as we'll see, John Milton, um, is very much in this interrogative mode, and it's very, very powerful, uh, no matter what your religious beliefs are, I think. Um, all right, well, let's... Um, We'll end there with Don. We have done. We have no more. Um, But I want to talk to you a little bit about the next reading. That will be book one of Paradise Lost. Now, Paradise Lost is John Milton's great epic about the fall of man. And it uh, borrows a lot of epic conventions from classical literature. And you'll see that in the, the style and the way it's written. Uh, you'll notice that there are a lot of epic similes. We mentioned those when we were uh, looking at the uh, the Fairy Queen, and Dunn will use those as well. And think about when he uses those those long kind of little story similes. What when he uses them, and what kind of imagery he brings up with them. Uh, also, the story here starts with the. Uh, the casting of Satan into hell. So it begins, book one, Satan has just been thrown out of heaven and he wakes up in hell. And I want you to think about how Satan is characterized or dramatized here. What kind of a guy is Satan? Um, what are his speeches like? How is How does Milton present him? Uh, what kind of a figure does he make? How does he, you know, this is the uh, the, the, the great evil, the great enemy of mankind. How does Milton convey that in uh, Book One of Paradise Lost? Um, and again, look at the the imagery that he uses. Um, also, you'll see that there's a big kind of construction project that they that they do in hell. And think about what that is and why they're. What they're building and what uh, he says about that. Uh, so we'll start our uh, uh, investigation of John Donne's Paradise Lost, John Donne, John Milton's Paradise Lost, um, on next time. If you have questions about that or other things, the email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thank you for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.